This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here, and welcome to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is author and watch guy and uh, connoisseur of fine living all around, Mr. Aaron Sigmund. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Ariel. How are you, man? Good to good to hear your voice. It's actually been a while, and uh, I guess I can say Happy Lunar New Year. We kind of missed the Gregorian New Year, but. Uh, but Lunar New Year just happened, so I'll I'll say that. That's very relevant in speaking about watches because um, these are all beautiful objects that track arbitrary intervals like the year. Absolutely, it's. Uh, I always say if you're a, a Chinese Jewish guy living in America, you get three New Years. I think that's fantastic. By the way, I mean think about that. You get you get you get Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> you get Lunar New Year, and then you get New Year New Year. I mean that's like. It's a trifecta of New Year's. I mean, there's no downside to that. I will t- any opportunity to get together and socialize with people and they're in a good mood, I will take it. I don't care what that's New what Year I'm it saying. is. And that's the thing. It has nothing to do with what you're celebrating. It's just it's the excuse people need to get together, which reminds me of something so crucial in our industry, and that is the be- is the consumer goes vacillates between two different types of behaviors normally. One the behavior of wanting a luxury item, and then two, the behavior of rewarding yourself with a luxury item, right? So it's like all this time spending about how you want to reward yourself, waiting for the opportunity to reward yourself, something to celebrate, and then doing it. And you need you need both of those things. I know I'm getting very philosophical here, but this is especially important to the pandemic. We have lots of people spending all this time you know, deciding that next luxury that they want to experience or own, but having oftentimes a deficit of um, executable instances. You know, like the vacation for many people was that's when they go shop. People tended to spend more money when they're traveling on vacation. Um, sure. And I think that it's important to think about this because we are on the front lines of creating the demand. We are the types of people that educate people into knowing why these things are cool, and then hopefully it inspires them to want one. But they still need those those instances. And there's just so many anniversaries and job promotions out there. People need those those personal things. And you you you're, you're you've done that. So have I. You've been like, I want to reward myself today, and you do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, the impetus for for buying uh, anything really that's beyond the norm, so beyond your groceries or you know whatever you buy normally, you know, maybe it's the you know your average price wine is twenty or thirty or even forty dollars a pop. But every once in a while, you're going to go and you're going to look at that one room that every kind of high like Wally's in L.A. You're in L.A. You know, you go into Wally's or red carpet, they got the one special room and there isn't a bottle in there for less than $100, $150 a bottle. And you need a reason to go into that special room, that 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 cave, that reserve room, whatever it is. And you walk in there and for any given occasion, whether it's one of the three aforementioned uh, New Year's celebrations or something else, you go and you... Uh, and you buy it, and, and you know you're treating yourself to that type of thing. And watches are no different. I would assume most people buy a watch less frequently than they do a bottle of wine, if not uh, lucky them, I suppose. Um, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> you do need. It's true. I mean, but you do need. And you know, you're talking about, uh, or I I brought up Lunar New Year, 
And you see all the special watches, um, if we're going to dive right into watches, all the special releases. Over the years, it seemed to be a little bit more tepid this year, um, which is a shame because it's the year of the Tiger. Tiger's nice visual. but um, What's tepid exactly? Tepid was the number of releases of Lunar New Year watches this year in comparison to years past. It seems like other industries have kind of jumped on that bandwagon and and watches did too but it seems like there have been less lunar new year watch releases this year than I'm so in sorry years to disappoint past. you Aaron I know you wanted to have more year of the tiger we used to make fun of all the year of the blank watches now Absolutely. they don't have enough of them you're like That's we right. need more year of the rat watches where's more year of the pig watches now the tiger which is a cool animal you're like you're like right. not what? Well, come on, Gucci. Can you do something? You do cool tigers, right? Yeah, no. It's uh, it, it's funny that you say that. We everybody in the in the cigar world, uh, it's been the same way. There have been a preponderance, really, a plethora of just Lunar New Year releases. It used to be one company, and then it was two, and it was two for a very long time. So the cigar companies do the same thing. They celebrate all these. Oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man, absolutely. Any sort of they will go to the opening of a letter, any sort of release, any sort of anniversary, the founder's birthday, the the company's birthday, the centennial, uh, the the 10 years after the centennial anniversary. You know, I think luxury marketing, and that's one of the things that when I wrote the four, we, one of the things you didn't mention, we'll back up a couple inches, is that I wrote the foreword to your book. We didn't even um, get to that stuff yet, but we'll get well, to it. Okay, we'll you we'll did. get to it, but I think it's germane here, and I'll tell you why. I remember one, when you asked me to, and it was a great honor, you asked me to, to, to write the forward to the book. I said, why, why me? And I didn't mean that in a self-deprecating sort of way. I really meant like there are a lot bigger, quote-unquote, watch guys, exponentially so, than, than me, because I'm kind of a broad luxury generalist. I, I write about whiskeys. I write about wine. I write about watches. I write a lot about cigars. And you said that's precisely why I want to have you write the forward as opposed to somebody else, because you have this kind of bigger picture, this broader perspective. You're not just singularly or myopically a watch guy. You have this kind of broad polymath approach to it all. And I do, but this, you sound so surprised that the cigar industry and many other industries, um, I think Limley, um, who does beautiful stuff in England, uh, marquetry boxes, uh, jewelry boxes, backgammon sets, they did a bunch of stuff. What I think is this is an overall luxury trend. These fine, pick any holiday, whatever it is, any celebration, any, it is the founder's mother's birthday. We got to come out with something special. I personally, not as a journalist per se or an author, but really as a consumer, I tire of those things because what I find often, quite candidly, is irrespective of the luxury category, but let's take watches, I find there is a tendency for people to overlook really genuinely overlook their standard production line in favor of these endless special releases. If they, they just can't all be that special. Some of them unequivocally are. Let me frame this here. This is so important to mention. It's, it's really salient to uh, our lives. 
you're talking about the fact that companies produce, let's just call them two types of products. There's something that they would call their core collection, which is supposed to be- Standard production, core collection. Whatever you want to call it. You can go into their store or their catalog, and it's something which is made on an ongoing basis. It's supposed to be classic. It's supposed to be good yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's a perennial is the word you're really searching. It's a perennial. It's a forever- it blooms all year round. It's 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 it, it blooms every year. Right. I should say. So that's so, one yes. type of product that they make, and then on top of that, they have what we'll call the seasonal flavor. Okay, mm-hmm. it's some. It's a great way of putting it, actually. Yeah, related to a current event or a special theme that they're curious in. Um, oftentimes, they they make a limited amount, right? They plan a certain amount. So rather than it being ongoingly right. made. They say we're only going to make a certain amount because, again, this is only made for a limited amount of time. The idea, or at least originally, wasn't really to sell extra. It was to get attention so people buy the core collection. But now that people buy things remotely, they can just buy the special things. And because the special things have a lot more special storytelling and messaging around them, and then there's this also sort of promise of extra exclusivity whether or not that's real is a different story, but there's a there's a there's a discussion around the extra exclusivity using terms like limited production, one out of a hundred, whatnot. What Aaron is saying is that, in t- given the way media and consumer you know demand works these days, only those products with the special stories and this was and the special exclusivity seem to get traction, and brands are having a very very tough time in a lot of re- in a lot of regards. Actually, quite a tough time selling that core stuff. I have a theory as to why, but would you agree that I adequately frame the issue? Well, yeah, I think I, I think it's bigger than that. Funny enough, I just wrote a very long piece, as a matter of fact, on collaborations, not just current collaborations, but actually the history of collaborations. By and there's collaboration. a lot, there's a lot, huge history. Oh, uh, it's a huge category, and it, it, it was a fascinating article to actually research. So you have these collaborations between either two different luxury houses or maisons, if you prefer, um, and you have or a celebrity of some sort. Usually, typically, it's 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 one or the other. Um, sometimes it's all, you know, it's three, it's two houses and and a celebrity. And as a result of those things, you have these capsule collections. Sometimes they're not even a capsule collection. They're a single item or a single item housed in something else. Um, Nike and Louis Vuitton just did uh, an Air Jordan uh, shoe that actually comes in a Vuitton truck. I think they made 200 of them or something like that. I came across it. So it's not really a collection. But the capsule collections are multiple items, usually three, five, 10, and then that's the end of it. And when they sell out, they sell out. And the premise of all these things are, as you said, you know, there are limited production, limited edition or actual just limited production where they don't give away the number of items that they actually produced, but they, but, but, you know, when they're sold out, they're sold out. This is very much, and it, Again, it doesn't matter that it's the watch industry or any other industry. It's a very victim of your own success kind of thing. These collaborations, as you've come to know them, really started in the 80s. Um, The 80s, and they kind of started percolating more in the 90s. And by the early aughts, they just exploded. Everybody was doing a collaboration. But really, in the last 10 years, there's just been this Pinnacle, we reach this apex where you have high low collaboration. Supreme and whoever they work with is a prime example. I mean, it's a skateboard brand, but yet they do stuff with Tiffany and they do stuff with Vuitton and they do all sorts of things. 
So there's a high-low element, and that has a certain cachet. There's uh, Balenciaga did something with, I want to say it was either Birkenstock or Crocs, which is just mind-numbing because Balenciaga was one of the most famous couturier houses in the world. Why are people so so surprised by these? They're not that big of a deal. Companies obviously lend capabilities to one another. Why is this so surprising? It's just like people are dating. It's like, so-and-so is dating so-and-so and and they had kids? (laughs) What? I have to see this. Like, it's a little weird, right? It is, but you know, it, it, you have a couple of different companies that were really, and one of them happened to be Target of all things. Target is really on the forefront. They were, they're, they're, you know, have a lower price point, but they're big on design, any sort of design, industrial design, uh, furniture design, which is industrial design of the sort, uh, fashion design. And they were really one of the companies other than Louis Vuitton. And you're like, what would Target or Target and Vuitton have in common? But they really were, you know, different tips of the same uh, kind of triad, the same sort of uh, spear that were pushing along, pitchfork, I guess, um, that were pushing along these collaborations. And then it just snowballed. And now there is nearly a day that goes by that I don't read about some sort of collaboration. And it all kind of goes back to what we initially talked about, were these special limited edition releases, of course, Everybody was talking. I have about a the different pet- idea as to why they're so okay. popular today. Sure. Um, today, marketing is crucial, and when certain types of products have built-in marketing benefits, it can add a boost without adding cost. By definition, collaboration watches involve multiple people being responsible, which means that multiple people want to spread information about the product. So, if you have a native community and you double that or triple that you now have more people you share this with, more chances of of it selling. I would argue that the power of the uh, collaboration watch is actually simply comes down to the number of people that it can reach out to because there's oftentimes a very limited marketing investment. And if you just sort of have multiple audiences, more people get it or potentially like it. And if you have someone that likes both brands, you could have double appeal. Right, like you can sort of like stimulate your your nervous system well, in multiple you the, areas. The number one example of something that's contrary to that that was on everyone's tongues, please, you know, the, this quarter, and that was obviously the Tiffany Blue uh, Nautilus. How was that Patek. contrary? Because Patek did nothing to promote that watch. It was all LVMH. It, it was you don't all think they LVMH fed it to the auction, Tiffany? Yeah, that doesn't. That's not the, That's not what you're saying. What you're saying is you have double the penetration as far as marketing efforts go. And what I'm saying is Tiffany and their parent corporation LVMH, they were the only ones really, really look at look at who wears the watch. Tiffany brand ambassador, you know Jay Z. But if, if it, but Tiffany in, branded watches don't do that well right now. They're great watches. They don't do that well. So I would argue that it does fit my model. Because simply by having Patek Philippe is, is there, and, and Patek Philippe audience members see it, it does well. So I, I, I would argue that it, it really does require the interest. That's of not what users. you said. You said that there was a double marketing effort, and I'm saying that. Oh, well, there's a double marketing benefit. Not so effort. Be present. No, I no, mean, you're right. You're technically you're saying right. That just by being there, they contributed. Obviously, yes. they did. But I really don't. I think that's an example of. I, I think. You can look at it many, many, many different ways, and that's certainly one of the ways you get. You know, it's 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 you know two for one, 
and you're absolutely, which is the now lowest common happens. denominator. People that. see that that works well, and you right. know that those things work well only when they're done occasionally. If it becomes the standard, then it doesn't matter. And if Tiffany and Patek Philippe, for example, are not going to, started to do a bunch of other co-labeled watches, they would precipitously do worse and worse and worse because the sure. specialness of this comes into effect. And therefore, that's the problem with marketers these days. They always want to have models to replicate. And they say, well, you can't, you can't recreate uh, something rare. You have to do something else which is rare. So they have to sort of rewrite um, the strategy every single time because this is sort of something which is non-replicable. Well, you say that, but what is to stop uh, Hermes from doing something with a watch company in Hermes Orange? I mean, there are more than it, one it isn't, signature. but it would require it would require a whole new effort. It wasn't like Louis Vuitton and Patek Philippe could use that and do anything with it. Yeah, I guess some other company would have to come up would have to come up with a strategy all over. Have to, they'd have to figure everything out, else out. Look, I'm saying this in the context because look, you and I benefit from the watch industry and the luxury industry understanding how marketing works. The more faith they have in marketing, the more more career we we have. So we have a vested interest in making sure that they have confidence in the effect of marketing so that they invest in it. So I'm looking forward and noticing that when it comes to the internet. There aren't a lot of stable models that they can just follow again and again and again. They're still experimenting. And because of that, they're very antsy. They like predictable outcomes. These are conservative people. So I feel that it's um, a duty to professionals such as yourself and, and me to figure out what are the things that work so that we can repeat. You know, press release is a perfect thing. You make a press release every single time. It's got a template, the information that goes in there. You just know that press releases work. But what if every time a new product came out, you'd be like, if only we could write some type of document to help inform people about this. Like, it'd be a nightmare trying to figure out how to do it every single time because there is a set way of doing a press release. You don't have a lot of that when it comes to digital marketing campaigns. They're still trying to figure out every single time what to do. And that and that slows things down. And that's where a lot of the investment uh, isn't happening because there aren't models to follow. Well, I just want to say two things. One, you said duty. <laughs> I did. I did <laughs> say duty. duty. Thank you, um, Beavis. <laughs> two, two is, um, I don't know that I agree. And I'll go back to Supreme. Supreme has done so many different collaborations uh, some have been wildly successful. Some I don't think have done that particularly well. Yet they're going back to the same well over and over and over again. You're saying, you know, we don't reinvent, you know, the format of a press release, but they need, they being marketers and luxury good houses in general, need to kind of recreate these things over and over again because people want to be wowed and surprised. Again, Supreme is one of those companies, it, it, it's a skateboard apparel company, and they make decks. I mean, that's that's what they do. And yet, they've done stuff with Bhutan. They've done stuff with Tiffany. They've done stuff with, they did a clock with Seiko. I don't know if it was last year or two years ago. Um, not that long ago. And it just, they're all over the board. But yet, it's pretty much always the same thing. They put their logo I'm, on I'm really glad you brought product. up Supreme. And I think that it's an interesting example because you're right. Because Supreme... I, Right. No, no, no. It, it, Supreme has a template, but what we're using is an outlier as sort of a, a standard. The, Supreme does not represent the standard way most of these companies work. Most companies cannot get away with that. Some have tried. So 
there's always the one company which is able to sort of get away with it because it's still novel and associated with their brand. And again, as you said, Supreme by no means is a success every single time. But what you don't have is other companies saying, let's do what Supreme does and doing it just as successful. Usually the market allows one company to hold that weird spot. Most companies (laughs) need to do it some other way. Right. Well, the only thing I would say is there's a very now you could say chicken and egg, but it's it's very clear after I wrote this article on collaborations, it's Vuitton. But Hublot and Vuitton dip from the same well. They partner with a lot of artists. And I always find that very interesting. And and Vuitton's been doing it a very, very long time, since 1996. So, um, And I only know that date because of this article that I, I wrote recently. And, you know, I find it, I, I find it fascinating that, to be honest with you, um, Hublot has taken so many pages out of the Vuitton playbook, but they genuinely and sincerely have. And I find that very, very interesting. So it's... It's a different twist. It's a different spin. But the fact of the matter is, they're kind of they kind of keep on going back to the same well, time and time again. And um, you know, I, so you say that people keep on. You know, uh, the the outlier is supreme. But I actually think there's probably if we really put our minds to it and not on the spot on a podcast, but we really thought about it. There's probably a good let's say 10 companies, let's say half dozen companies. There's a certain number of companies, whatever that number is. That is a good model. And so let's go back to what I said. I said it in the new digital marketing era. They love models that work. And you mentioned that this is a model that Louis Vuitton did in 1996. Other people have sort of done it before. What I'm saying is that they like established models. Those are established models that they, they, they use, and you're absolutely right. That is a very important, popular one, working with an artist to make something cool. But today, in the world of how to use new digital channel um, avenues to reach people, I'm noticing from the side that they're still heavily trying to figure out what these models are. So they're doing something with an artist is the main idea. How you communicate that online, uh, there's not necessarily a direct way of doing that. I'd like to see large, robust campaigns which take what they do in the real world and translate it into messaging that reaches a lot of audiences online. Um, And I guess my frustration is that they're sometimes making assets, but they're not distributing it correctly. But most of the time, they're not making the assets. And that's what I advocate for because it goes to professionals like you and me. We are asset creators. We create the collateral, if you will, around the world of luxury that helps explain it to everyone else. We provide some of the context and the storytelling in different ways for, you know, for different audiences, but that help make this a universe and a world and a discussion. Um, I like to say that if there isn't enthusiast media about um, something, there's no hobby. Hobby is the discussion. Hobby is the community. The stuff can be amazingly cool, but if there isn't an organized community of people who are talking about it and have sort of an established hierarchy um, of, of categories and ways of talking about it, you don't have a hobby. And so supporting what we do creates the hobby, it facilitates it, which makes it a, a pursuit rather than just a product to buy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I do. I don't agree with everything you said. That's okay. Um, That's okay. But uh, sure. It's like a rule you And have. you also <laughs> kind of segued to digital, and we hadn't talked about that. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I still think there's a lot of validity in print as an author um, and somebody who still does stuff for magazines. So there you go. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, you know, there's an interesting, uh, you know, niche medias in general be 
be it, you know, watch media or wine media or cigar media or luxury on the whole media, uh, something like Rob Report, I suppose. In my day, there used to be also a magazine called Connoisseur um, that was a direct competitor to Rob. And you kind of look at it all and you uh, you, you kind of say, you know, who's perpetuating who? And you kind of alluded to that. Um, uh, and, you know, I think that's an interesting thing. You know, I get these alerts in my email. I get these alerts on my text. It's like breaking news. I mean, is a new watch really breaking news? I mean, I, and I love watches. I mean, here's a guy who has been collecting. I'm 57 years. Uh, how old am I? No, I'm not 57. I'm 55. I'm 55. And I've been collecting watches actively since I was about 17. So that's a good long time. So I love watches and I'm really passionate about watches, but is a new watch really breaking news in a 24 hour news cycle world that we live in? You're talking about we're in the, we're in the clickbait era and, and we are so oversaturated with possible things to look at. Media creators have said the only way they can get our attentions is through uh, sensationalism, right? Right. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. So, okay. So let, let's, let's, let's go back to a different topic here. You were talking about collecting watches from uh, a relatively early age. I got into watches yeah. not too much older. I think I was 21 or something like that. So, you know, at, at, at a similarly young age and both of us had a fascination for these items before we ever did anything related to media. For sure. I have always found that the luxury media industry does best when there are professional, not professionals, real enthusiasts, real hobbyists. It's not a, a, a journalist which is covering boats. It's someone else who loves boats, the design, the history, how they're made, and naturally is interested in sharing through writing and other media their own experience. I feel that it would be fundamentally different if it was someone whose primary job it was to cover it from a journalistic perspective. So what I'm saying is that hobbyist editorialism is better for luxury media than journalism. And what we've seen is when I, I guess started, I'm not understanding your, your different, the difference I'll between explain, the I'll two. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, when I first got into this, a lot of the people at some of the publications I was writing for, and I wrote for some publications that, you know, covered a lot of different things, food and cars and travel and art and whatnot, um, mm -hmm. were people that lived those things in their lives, had a lot of maturity around it, had some free time, and sort of as a freelance thing wrote about it. It wasn't their job to cover luxury. They That's were, right. They were enthusiasts. You, in a lot of ways, you've, you've lived the life, and so you're reporting about a life you've lived. You're not necessarily looking to the side from a neutral third-party perspective. <laughs> no, I'm not. A, no, I've know, been lucky that way. Right? So this, this community was mostly populated by what I would call enthusiast content creators. Sure. Now we have something very, very different, where in general, the people who are writing content online are very, very young, because it's typically a very entry-level thing. It's seen as being very replaceable. Um, it's, it's sort of a weird time for professional writers. Totally different story. But the idea is that there isn't a very high bar right now for writing content about watches. Anyone can do it. There's no gatekeepers. I can go to medium.com right now within minutes, start writing about watches or start an Instagram account. No one, no one has to say, oh, you look like you have good credentials, sir. I'll hire you. Like that, that, right. that world is, is, is gone. Maybe if I want a, a paying job at a publication, but again, that's a different story. There's no, there's no bar to just writing stuff. So today you have 
people writing about products more interested in making the people they're writing about happy than the people they're writing for, right? We live in an advertiser-driven media economy. Things are paid for by the client, by the advertiser. Not yet are but we in a place always, where people are... But they always were. I, I think you're... I, I mean, look, I've been in media 30 years, uh, 30 years this year. And, you know, one of the things that, that was great about uh, the, the World Wide Web and everything that came after it, all the social media platforms, all that, just everything, just we'll just say digital as a whole, because there are, there, there's the podcast we're doing and there's, there's podcasts and there's vlogcasts and there's this and there's that. There's so much stuff out there, so many di- uh, social media platforms. There right. was a democratization of media that came that took away from professional journalism. And I don't know that those people were really hobbyists because, to be honest with you, Rob Report, again, Connoisseur, and back in the day, Playboy magazine, not the, the Playboy that scarcely exists today. But these were, real, these were magazines that pushed a luxury agenda, and they were helmed by real editors, real editorial directors, real editor-in-chiefs, the Esquires and the GQs of the world back in the day. And the fact of the matter is they... You know, they hired real reporters and real editors and real journalists and real authors to 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 write stories about all these things. So you can't complain what it's become because we're part of the reason it became what it became. We allow these uncredentialed individuals to say what they want. I mean, everybody got their own soapbox, right? Everybody got their own platform. Well, I, I, I'm not I'm not complaining so much. And again, thank you for adding that, that additional context. That's important. I guess part of the point I'm coming to is that magazines, a lot of them receive subscription income from the user as well as advertising income. So at the, so at the very least, there's sort of an equal uh, allegiance to both. Now, the allegiance is to the advertiser as opposed to the reader. And that's just built in the economics. I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying that's built into the economics right now. That's uh, not entirely true. And as somebody who started out in print media for two of the great Esquire and Playboy, two of the great heritage, uh, you know, men's kind yeah. of uh, media companies, on, you know, uh, newsstand sales, you're talking about newsstand sales. You can say there was consumer interaction. But the fact of the matter is the the cost of print and distribution of that print material and the, the amount of percentage of what the distributor got, what the newsstand guy got, what this you, – you say the only thing that buying a subscription or buying a copy of anything on a newsstand, it covered the cost of print. It was still advertising-driven. I cannot – really stress that enough as that's somebody true. who's I'm, I'm kind of brackish water like i'm too I, I said it the other day in a completely different context and different meaning but it's actually the exact same thing i'm not old per se though i'm sure to some of your listeners i'm like older than their father but i'm not old but i'm old school and by that i mean this i had the true privilege and honor really just unbelievably so of living through the last and what will likely ever be the last golden age of, of print media, of magazines. And so what I've seen is, I mean, look, my first, my first job in a magazine, I had a typewriter. I, I mean, there was like the, the big boss had this Wang word processor. It, was, it took up an entire room. You said duty, I said Wang, but it, it was a brand back in the day. <laughs> and 
it was um, it was huge. It, it was enormous. It, like it, it took like a whole programmer just to 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 run it. It was crazy. But everyone had typewriters. I had an IBM Selectric. So I have what's amazing. I think or I feel these days is I'm just at that perfect age where I've seen the complete the complete and utter trajectory of getting I remember getting my first email address and then I look at my daughter who's 14 and like like before she was born we were like what's her gmail going to be I mean like it's a totally different mindset so you talk about Advertising, I would actually argue quite candidly that advertisers and advertising agencies and their clients exerted, if not as much, I will only say, almost say more pressure on media than they do today. And all you have to do, there is some truth, it's not a lot of truth, but there is some truth to the Mad Men era. Now I'm too, I'm way too young for that. But I knew the guys, the guys who were my mentors, they were the mad men. Literally, they were those guys in the Lucky 60s you. and the 70s because I came along in the late 80s and the early 90s. So the guys who were my mentors, the guys who were the elder statesmen of media then, they were those guys. Like Hef edited my book for Playboy. That is a thing. Like I got to have conversations with him about media about magazines about all that stuff and i'm just saying that there's a naivete in your assertion that somehow madison avenue which was really on madison although leah burnett was in chicago was really there and just and they flexed their muscle man they and by the way there was no i'm gonna i don't like what the agency in the united states is gonna say i'm gonna email in my broken French, the guys in, in Switzerland or the guys in Paris or the guys in London, you don't have to use your broken French for that. But there was none of that. Whatever the guy in New York or Chicago said, that was it. The buck stopped there. And then you have the car companies. And you don't think that when we ha- when GM and Ford and these companies were at their absolute apex, they didn't rule the roost. I remember when Budweiser dominated men's media dominated sports illustrated way before there was an espn magazine sports illustrated playboy all esquire they all relied on budweiser money and if you weren't making the regional distributor happy and if you weren't making the boys in st louis happy you were going to lose oh thousands hundreds of thousands millions of dollars on, uh, because that this was is the- this is this is fantastic context, and I I don't actually think we're we're, we're disagreeing. I think we're just telling slightly different stories. I I completely uh, agree and acknowledge that what you're saying is exactly how it was, and the advertisers had great interest. I guess I'm still talking about in today's digital world things that might help uh, journalists r- be a little bit more interested in 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 the. the the consumer, the world you're talking about, people were protecting millions of dollars. And the, the world we're talking about, you have these novices coming in thinking that if they speak about a brand nice enough for long enough, they might get some money. Oftentimes they don't. So what, what I'm basically saying is that the, the, they're, they're, the career path to being a, a writer of these things is anything but certain, and there's no really avenue into it. And it's sort of a a weird time to, to to get into this type of thing. But this context you're offering is, oh, is amazing. Well, that I totally agree. I mean, you know, I have, I'm, I'm pretty open on social media. I mean, it's, I have two different public accounts and, uh, 
like you, I'm sure you get a ton of DMs and I get DMs too. People ask me all manner of questions, but every once in a while I'll get a question, you know, about getting into media. And my number one thing is like, I mean, in my day and, and, and now, because I've achieved some, some very, 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 very moderate, uh, minuscule, um, microscopic success that I still command a, a livable wage. But the fact of the matter is, I look at young people today, and this does make me sound old, but it's still my advice. Um, I think you got to be crazy. Uh, I look at, there's, um, I, I can't remember their name. There's uh, some sort of new watch group in LA, and they approached me, um, and they said, hey, we have a couple of your books, and we like what you do. And we really would love for you to write for us. And I sent him back a note and I said, that's great. I really appreciate it. It was very complimentary. I was really, really sincerely appreciative. And I said, this is my rate and it's non-negotiable. And I never heard from those people again. <laughs> and I never will. And that's a true story. It just happened like a week or two ago. They sent me the nicest, most glowing gushing. And I'm like, if, I'm like I can't live on what you guys your business model doesn't work because it does not provide a livable wage for anyone generating your content. And it just, and that's why the content is always crap for the most part. I got to make a statement. Guys, I like no, no, you no, no. You're, you're, you're bringing you guys, up an important point. And, and it is. I, I, I got a comment here. So I'm going to give sort of an immediate situation, a little bit of context. The immediate situation is that my media, that of course has team members and like you, needs to be paid to survive is now having to compete with absolutely free. That right. is crazy. Yeah. The, the, I went on a trip recently, and I'm not going to go too much into it, but multiple of the people... What kind of trip? No, a like a trip? little watch trip with a couple oh, of... Uh, like, okay. So different than like a mushroom or an acid yeah, trip. Yeah, that's, a different, that's right. for a different podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> there was multiple people on this trip, nice people, but who had mentioned that they were concerned that the bosses of their of their full-time day jobs would learn that they were at these events. These are people that have small hobbyist podcasts and things like that. I mean, truly the definition of a hobbyist. They make mm -hmm. zero money at it. They put money into it. This is their hobby. They love having a, a podcast about watches. But they have a daytime job, which means that they are you know, specifically not professionals in the space. That right. is who I'm having to compete against now. These people that right. never expect any money love the idea of being invited to trip once in a while. And the watch brands think that even if these men and women last two or three years, there'll always be someone new to replace them. Well, There's it's no like amateur porn and like vivid, right? It's, uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I guess so different. now that you mention oh, yeah. it, because, because <laughs> you as a father of one are a virgin at uh, whatever age you are. <laughs> no, um, but I never thought about the, the economics of amateur it's like you have paid entertainers who do this for a living, irrespective of what they're doing. And, uh, I'm making no moral judgments here and, and, uh, <laughs> uh, no, but you know, you have amateur and you have, but you have that with so many different things. But again, this goes back being serious for a second about the great democratization of digital media and that see you talk about the the roadblocks and kind of the 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 gatekeepers and all those type of things with print media you had that you had to interview to be you know a writer there weren't even if you started writing the smallest little thing for esquire the smallest little thing for playboy the smallest little thing for gq vogue l it, it didn't matter what it was there were there were criteria and there were standards most people 
I just missed that era, but it's what the the novel Bright Lights in Big City is all about. Most people who started out in media were either one of two things. They were either a fact checker, which was a lot more difficult then, uh, pre, pre-technology age, and uh, or they were an intern. I mean, you started out at the very, very, very bottom. And based on merit and talent and tenacity, you worked your way up. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. And now, and now we just have we just have freelancers and soloists. You know, it takes one person to run an Instagram channel. You don't even have to maintain a website, and that means there are no more gatekeepers. Uh, and, and look, it, it comes with the negative. Is that because the brands are legitimizing these individuals as much as they are a credentialed journalist, and that is patently wrong. But they need. You talked about clickbait. You talk about they need that endless. It's like feeding a furnace. They need that endless furnace of social media content to be to be fed here's who i think you can meet you can you can blame if you need to blame someone i blame you i I am part of the problem (laughs) it's true Um, i don't know and and here's why i'm part of the problem because when i came in i represented a lower cost alternative to the print publications i didn't know it at the time i just thought everyone else was sort of like lazy and overpriced but i realized like they were just trying to have normal jobs that you know allowed them to have a personal life as well right so I would it wasn't my fault, but I was just part of that 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 train of bloggers coming in and now it's you know influencers that, that have an even lower overhead. Um, the, if you want to blame someone, it's the lack of mature adults at the brands, the lack of them truly understanding what they want for marketing, saying, you know what? I want an Aaron Sigmund writing about me. I don't want the latest person on on TikTok to to be paid to care about me. If they get into me naturally because they learn about me, that's great. But I really want to sort of like I have a high level of dignity in the media that I that I pay to create. You need you need the responsible people at the brands for that. And for that, they need to be willing to invest the money. Now, you may disagree. I don't know. If we're talking specifically about the watch industry, I mean, one of the fundamental problems, at least in this country, is just the amount of turnover. I update my my list all the time. And at least you guys, you being a, a blog to watch, you know, really try your very best. But do you remember, and we're going to hop off this topic because I think we've, we're beating a dead horse here, but I want to tell a funny kind of anecdotal story. Do you remember you, you, you came to me, and I don't know if it was the first drive time, like, there was some reason you came to me and you said, hey, we'd like you to write periodically for um, for a blog to watch. And I think it was because there was a cigar-themed watch coming out or something like that. 
And then you told me what you paid, which was not nothing, but for me, it was nothing. Do you remember what I told you at that time? I said, next time I'm in LA, we're going to go to sushi. We're going to go to a nice amakase uh, dinner. And that's going to be your payment. Because by the time I do my due diligence, by the time I do my research, by the time I pay my editor, by the time I do all these things and pay taxes, I'm going to be at a loss if I write for you at that price. But if you're nice enough to take me to a really, really nice, you know, uh, sushi dinner, then I will do that. But that's the difference. Part of where I am in my career now being the older guy is I am obliged, morally and ethically obliged to give back to the industry, any industry, whether you consider it the cigar industry, the watch industry, or the media industry, I'm obliged to give back and mentor other people and and answer all those DMs. I have a, a responsibility to do that. And anyone who thinks otherwise, who's been in the same industry or around the same businesses for as long as somebody like I have been, which is, again, three decades, it's a long time, you know, you can be a professor, you can be an adjunct professor, you can you can give lectures, but you still have an obligation to talk to people and make them understand the value of your work, the value of your worth, and what their future value should include. Should, you know, we, wor- could should be. we work on your masterclass? Is this what this where this is where this is going? It kind of sounds like that, right? Let's do yeah, it. I guess I, you know, it's it's, but it's true. You are. You are obliged becoming, you know, I talked about mentors earlier in the show and I talked about these elder statesmen. And the fact of the matter is, I look at some of the guys who are contemporaries of mine who have kind of still stayed in media and there just aren't a lot of us because carving out a living. And to me, that's one of the reasons I keep on doing the books because the books are a heritage they're a heritage media model that still generates enough revenue that you can earn a living doing them. And, you know, that's just it, which is the perfect segue for my new book. Yeah, so let's, okay, the, look, you've done you've done a lot of watch. You've done a bunch of drive times. And I think the story behind Well, I think we book, need to back up. I've done a lot of watch books. I've done, I want to say, a dozen. It could be only 10, not including a children's book. So that would be 11. And the children's okay. book hasn't come out yet. But drive time, deluxe edition is either the 10th or 11th watch book that I've either done or I've uh, co-authored, a combination thereof. So we can go from there. How's that? Okay, so I've, you know, and, and this has been something that is a little bit more recent, it seems, a lot of the books that you've done. You have not, you know, entirely recent, but it's sort of a new era for what you've done. And came out with a book this summer or last summer. I mean, I don't know how recent you... You know, I come out well, with in a terms, book in every terms year. Of the, the span of your career, in the span of your oh, career. Yeah, no, I got it. I'm like, I'm like, you know, a book a year. I'm coming out with three this year. Three is a lot. That's a three lot. That's is, a lot. And you lot know, the books. discipline uh, it takes it to is. write a book, the time. It's 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 an art form which is um, uh, not as common as it, it used to be. There's obviously still a lot of books coming out, but you know, in the luxury publishing space, not there's there's no new book writers. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's not coming around. I, 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 I mean, it's so, I mean, it's even tough for me. I pitch ideas that get shot down constantly. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I think I sent your son uh, my children's books or some of them anyway. It, it's like, I love doing my children's books. A lot of people don't even know that I'm a children's author in addition to all the nonfiction uh, books that I've done. 
You're running for yourself. I get it. Four, <laughs> essentially, I am at this juncture because I've done four of them. And when you really put time over money, I've just lost so much money doing those things. But you also there's there's an art and there's a passion to it, and you just get better at it and you refine it and you keep on doing it. But let's go back to a shameless plug for Tribe Time Deluxe Edition by Rizzoli, out March 29th. So tell, tell people what's in in the book. Explain. You know, pages, what, 304 pages, of them. But, but really, no one's seen. Imagine that people listening haven't seen the book, may have not heard of you. Sure. You know, you, you need to explain it. What do you gain by looking through this book? What does this book going to teach you? What does it What does it encompass? Well, we were talking about, uh, or I was, you weren't, you were being very delicate and diplomatic about it. We were talking about porn, uh, or I was talking about porn. And this is pure watch porn. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's I make no... I, I, I'm, I'm certainly not ashamed of it. It is straight up watch porn. So I'll start at the very beginning. I was a contributing editor for over a decade for one of the three big car magazines in the United States. There's Road and Track, Car and Driver, and Auto Week. And I was one of the editors of Auto Week, a, a contributing editor for a very long time. And while I was there, I, um, I wrote a series of columns on basically chronographs that are inspired by either races or automobiles. And I know you're not a huge fan of this category, which is really funny that we're talking about it. What but category? I, these, I love cars. Auto. I know you love cars and I know lo- you love watches, but I've read disparaging words on a blog to watch that you don't love watches inspired by cars and races. Don't deny it because I've read it. It's I just think there's too much of it and half the time the watches don't make any sense. There's no logical connection to the race at all or cars. I, I don't. You know what? I totally concur. Of that, I concur. So when I was at um, Auto Week, I thought to myself, I said, there is a book in this, basically an anthology of all the things that I had written for this magazine, and I own the rights to my own work. And I started working on this, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And it grew into the first book, the first edition of Drive Time A, but also the first book in what has come to be called the Rizzoli Timepiece Trilogy. And Rizzoli, New York, is a very, very famous uh, book publisher. In um, here in New York, does your contract require you to say Rizzoli a certain number of times per week? <laughs> no, but I'm very proud of my affiliation for them. I, <laughs> I started going. I started going to their store, which used to be on 57th between Fifth and Sixth, like as a teen, and I just loved it. I, you know, my goal was I have to have a book from them one day with my name on it, and now I got five, so that's something to be said. And so I wrote the first book and it did very well. And we came out with another one very, very quickly. And then I was actually having um, cocktails when I still drink cocktails with Nick Sullivan, who's the creative director of Esquire and was back then the men's fashion director and um, Scott Lehman, who was the associate publisher of marketing for Esquire. And Nick, who is British by birth, but a Brooklynite by choice, um, said, you know, what about the other books in the series? I said, I've done two versions of drive time. I'm like, that's kind of the, the, the alpha and omega where we're done with it all. It's, it's the beginning and the end. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, and he's a big watch writer as well. He writes a lot of the watch content for um, Esquire. And he said, there has to be a sea time and an air time. You have to do drive wa- uh, dive watches next. And I said, that's a very interesting idea. And I went to Charles Myers, who's the uh, who's the publisher at Rizzoli, which is the last time I will mention their corporate name. And I brought to him the idea, and I said, it wasn't even my idea. I said, Nick came out with this idea, and it's kind of brilliant, and I'd like to do it. And 
lo and behold, subsequently, uh, after the second edition of Drive Time, we had Sea Time, and which you actually hosted um, its launch party in Los Angeles, Hollywood, yeah. I guess technically yeah. as we were. Um, we were at, and then, and then in the middle of the pandemic, which was kind of a bummer and it didn't get the play that it should have, we came out with airtime, which was all about aviation, aeronautics, and, and really pilots watches what it comes down to. And that was great fun. And while we were doing airtime, I kind of said to myself, I said, I don't want the series to end here. I want it to end kind of where we began, just really kind of make it full circle, but really make a very special book. And one of the things I'm actually very proud of is the first two drive times, sea time and air time all have the exact same price. We never raised the price. It was always the same. You could collect them all. They were very, very approachable. And, uh, so we said, we we're going to come out with a real quote unquote deluxe version. And it became the deluxe edition of this book. That's going to be significantly longer, almost a hundred pages longer. Um, it's going to be much more in-depth. It's going to be a little bit of an anthology. We're going to include some of the other things that would have been in past versions of the book that um, wouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense to put it in this book if it didn't have uh, an anthology element to it. We're going to recurate all the watches. We're going to evaluate each one, one after another, and really look at them long and hard. And then uh, we're going to put it in a, in a slipcase, and we, you know, this beautiful kind of uh, linen-wrapped, silver foil stamps. You, you want to know something? And again, thank you for the whole story. Sure. You know, I know that most people are reading their content digitally these days, but I, I want to say that books like Drive Time, you know, they're coffee table books. They're, they're a design item unto themselves. Sure. So sometimes, and again, this, this is not meant to denigrate our contribution as writers, but sometimes the value of these items in people's lives isn't for what's inside of it, but for having this book on a shelf, on a table, in an office. Luxury books like this are so common. I got a kid to, to put through college. I'm good with that. As long as they buy it, I'm fine. I would prefer that they read the 55,000 words I wrote on watches in this uh, and, so, and some and will, and some will. But Absolutely. I think what's important is that they will skim through from time to time, get nuts, nuggets of information. But the contribution we have to culture. Think about all the people who aren't even interested in watches that just happen to see that book in the right context. Your book, well, it's a lifestyle. my book. It's, it's definitely a men's style book as much as it is a, yeah. I, I should say men's style book. It is a style book. Um, these watches have a propensity to skew uh, to a male demographic, but by no means well, we're men. is it limited. We're going to write well, about we, stuff we know. There's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that, but I'm just trying to, you know, I'm trying to keep the, I mean, I mentioned porn like twice, so I, I got to keep the woke police kind of off my ass. So I, <laughs> have they been um, <laughs> Yeah, they, they have been. It's like, they, you know, I see the warrant uh, taped to the door. No, you know, it's, um, it is a lifestyle. It is a style guide. It is a style book as much of it. And, you know, I don't know if you've had Matt Horanek, if you've had Maddie on the show yet or, or not. No, we haven't had Matt on yet. And I don't, and I don't, you know, I don't listen to the show really. Um, but uh, no, I did. I listened to Adams. Uh, it was quite nice. But, um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I'm really, really proud of is Maddie and I both presented watches. I'd like to also point out I did it first, but it doesn't matter who's first, except for the fact that I was first. Um, Maddie and I, our books really presented watches in a very different way, in a way that they had it. When I came out with the original drive time, 
99% of all books on watches were really mono-brand monographs. And that means they focused on a single brand, in some cases, a mono-model. They were only about a single, they were about a Daytona, or they were about a single a single model, whether it was a Speedmaster, or whether it was a, a Daytona or something of that ilk, or a single brand, whether it, you know, take any, any pick thereof. What drive time, the original drive time, it's kind of funny because usually it doesn't follow suit this way, but what drive time did is it took a very blog approach or a very magazine approach uh, to a book and said, we're going to cover a category, in this case, chronographs that relate to racing and cars. We're going to cover a category in this book, which the New York Times called a luxury textbook. And I love that because it's so accurate. You said coffee table book. Some coffee table books have 1,500 words. These books have just shy of the amount of words that are in the novel. And so, you know, it's like we created a new way. And this really ushered in a new era. And even books that had that kind of approach to watches specifically, but it kind of fallen on deaf ears. They were brought back. People did reissues of these books and they did re-releases of these books and they did, you know, revised editions of these books. And I think that is something that is an interesting legacy as well. So if somebody wants to have all those books on their bookshelf for no other reason than it's aesthetically pleasing with them, I'm so good with that. I can't even tell you. These books are beautifully designed. They're gorgeous. They are works of art for sure. (laughs) They are. They are. And again, I'm I'm just trying to place them into sort of consumer context right now because you and I both go to places that have these books sitting around. And I'm like, that's not necessarily on the bookshelf of a watch lover, even though the books are also there, but these are out in public. And what I'm saying is that public presence of them is really good for us in the category. Yeah. I tell, oh, it's, I think it's great. Okay. La- last question, because we're, mm. we're almost out of time. I believe, and it's sort of an evolving theory, that a solution to some of the issues of these luxury brands is just to hire people like you, people like me, other enthusiasts into the company. There seems to be a lack of decision makers that truly have vision and know what they're doing. Uh, you know, is it a good or bad idea for people like you and me to eventually find their way running some of these brands uh, that we used to spend so much time talking about and helping to promote? Okay, I'm going to get really serious for a second. I know good. if if any of your listeners have actually made it this far, I will. Uh, I, a, I'm impressed. And Self-deprecating thank you humor. Very good. Very good. It's a uh, but. I have to tell you, I am going to get very serious. It's no secret that for, wow, three and a half years, I guess, I worked um, with Gerard Perigo, who at that time was having a bit of a renaissance. It was when Caring, who just divested themselves of the brand, um, only was a minority shareholder. They, the, the Macaluso family was still the majority shareholder. And there was a CEO there who actually I'm personally very, 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 very fond of and who I will not name. And while he was there, I went to him and I said, we need to do the following four things to really, really pick up this brand. And like you, I'm a marketing guy with my boots on the ground in this market, a market that is was then and is now again, the number one watch market in the entire world. And as far as we know it, the entire universe. And I went to him and I gave him over time Three very specific, very specific suggestions, ideas that he 
instantaneously, without any thought whatsoever, rejected. And when I went to him again with them, he rejected them again. And this went back and forth repeatedly to the point, amusingly enough, where that CEO was bounced from that company, but I stayed until the full acquisition of Caring, and they moved all the offices down to Florida. I'm not the burning bush, and I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And that's not self-deprecating humor. You should look at some of my transcripts. I think they'll back it up. But the fact of the matter is, I didn't know what I was talking about. And I knew how I was talking to all the watch consumers so often, every day. As a matter of fact, I even though I was the marketing guy, I moved my offices into when they had their own boutique on Madison Avenue. And I had my offices in the store, in the flagship boutique for the United States of America to talk one-on-one with consumers because I needed to know what they wanted out of this particular brand, which at that time had the Seahawk and had some really cool things going on. And nobody would listen. So I don't know if the right answer is going to www.linkedin backslash Aaron backslash Sigmund or your LinkedIn But the fact of the matter is, I think some of the European companies who demand so much out of this particular market need to be more open to some of the American marketing strategies. I just had a very similar conversation today with a brand that actually is helping me promote the Drive Time book. And I kind of felt like it was deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra. Okay, so let let me stop you right here, because I think what you're saying is that Yes, it makes sense, but there's a a a systemic problem in that the system doesn't allow for people to actually be decision makers. So yes, if if actual decision-making capacity was given, no, if it's going to be the same type of relationship where a couple of people in Switzerland make decisions for the entire planet and there's no... Ladies and gentlemen, that was called a summary by Ariel Adams. Yes, that is a synopsis of what I was saying and while perfectly eloquent, uh, far less entertaining, quite candidly. Well, no, so is, is there a solution? Is there a way? Because you're right. The people in Europe fundamentally need to say, this person I hire has to have some authority. Man, these people aren't listening. Why aren't they listening? I don't know. I do not know. It's frustrating. They, they have huge expectations out of this market. They have huge expectations out of this market. But they don't want to defer to anyone who has a real working knowledge of it. You know, I have no problem saying I've done a lot of things over the years with Porsche design. I love the brand. I love the watches. I like a lot of things about it. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. They have their own chapter or part of their own chapter these days in the next version of Drive Time. I'm a big fan of it. But I felt like every time I suggested anything that didn't come from Stuttgart or did not come from Switzerland, where the watch factory is, I just, you know, they just, I got pushback. It's really frustrating that they have expectations, because but they want they no influence. For doing something that is unapproved. That's a problem. Right. They have this, they come from a consensus culture, which means that by definition, decisions need to be agreed upon. It, it's it's antagonistic to the idea of one person deciding what to do. Bevere is an anomaly because Bevere is a single human being that made decisions. It's like, okay, I made a decision, do this. Most companies don't make a decision unless 18 people agree. And 18 people right. rarely agree on anything. So very right. little actually gets done. We need to sort of establish this, I, this notion that 
to a degree, the cult of personality works in the watch industry. Let someone run with a vision. Maybe you don't like the vision, but what we find is that people that run with a singular vision tend to be much more successful than things which are decided in some committee basis, which is stupid and doesn't ever work. So it's not just let enthusiasts uh, work at the brand, but give them the power to actually do something. I'm going to leave you with one thing we were talking about, mentorship and giving back and whatnot. And I've, I've said repeatedly in different scenarios and in slightly different ways that I can teach you how to be a marketer. I can teach you how to be a better writer. I can teach you, well, not you, but other people I can teach to be a better writer. Um, that was funny. But the fact of the matter is I can't instill passion in you. And that kind of dovetails back to where our original part of the, like our whole conversation started, where you said where all these people came from and how they were originally passionate. You have to have the passion. It can't just be a gig. People see through it. There's transparency out there. You can't fake it. If you love it, it shows and it shines. And a committee can never collectively love it. They can all have their individual takes on what that passion is. But you can't, you can't amplify collective passion. Not really. Not, at least not in this business. Maybe you can in a... In cars, it seems to be, but you still start with a single designer. Okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm going like to summarize again. Okay, You summarize because we're the out lesson, of time. The lesson to everyone is assign autocrats like Aaron. <laughs> I don't know if that's the answer. But no, it, it is. is Auto- autocratic I, rule from a creative perspective, not from an administrative perspective, but from a creative perspective, is the only way forward in, in any luxury company. absolute autocratic rule when it comes to creative decisions. Wrong or right, there's no other way forward. I firmly believe this. Well, I mean, you want want someone who's autodidactic. You want somebody who, who learned about a certain thing for the passion of learning about it. You don't yes, want to, you know. That's the person that makes the decisions, but you have to consolidate creative decision making to one person. Well, I think it should be me then. If we're and, just and going there, there should be at some brand, it should be Aaron. I wholeheartedly agree. Aaron, before <laughs> we go, just yeah. finally tell people where can they where can they learn more about you and get Drive Time and your other publications? Uh, sure. So uh, there is AaronSigmundBooks.com and at AaronSigmundBooks on Instagram. Uh, and as far as the books, they're all on uh, either Azaline.com, Rizzoli, uh, I think it's RizzoliUSA.com, but they're all on Amazon. Like, I'm, I'm big on Amazon. Just Google me on Amazon, or search me on Amazon, I suppose. Um, thank you so much for your time. This was actually uh, good fun. I really... Uh, I tend to look at forward to these about as much as a root canal, but this was uh, this was a good time. So Glowing I appreciate you by Aaron Signum. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't review. happen very often. I'll tell you that much. Anyway, thank you very much, Aaron. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for listening to the Superlative Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>